Thank you, brother. That's good. All right. Children, if you want to head on downstairs for children's church and nursery and all that fun stuff, you can do so now. All right. So we're still in our uh, series on on the temple, tabernacle temple, the importance of it in the Old Testament, why uh, it was used in the Old Testament. We talked about last week about the the tabernacle, and we kind of went through the the history lesson of the big picture as to why the importance as to why the tabernacle, God had Moses build the tabernacle as they were uh, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was an intentional means in which God was pointing to them to the importance of having God at the center of their lives, the center of their nation. Um, also, we talked about the importance of what was happening inside of the temple. We had three different points last week that the, the tabernacle was uh, used to to provide um, Uh, to demonstrate to God's people separation that God is holy we are sinful and because of our sin we are separated from God and the the tabernacle I won't re-preach last week's sermon but the tabernacle was a demonstration of that because God's glory dwelled in the holy of holy places there was a veil that was cut off for mankind no one could approach that that place while God's glory was there only the high priest once a year would offer a blood sacrifice on the day of atonement to do so and so it provided separation it also demonstrated um, to God's people that there was a need for mediation, that there's someone needed to stand in between sinful man and a, and a holy God. And so God used the, the Aaronic priests um, out of the tribe of Levi to demonstrate as they worked in the temple, they were set apart for the working of the temple. And then ultimately the third point that we saw was that there was the temple or the tabernacle demonstrated the need for atonement, for a covering, for a substitute. And so day after day, Animals were, were, were uh, sacrificed and placed on the altar to, to demonstrate the gory and sick uh, demonstration of what our heart and our sin truly looks like in the eyes of a holy God. The cost that it takes to cover such a thing, to be able to be atoned for. It was before their eyes every day they saw the cost of what sin did. And then we got to experience the good news last week that Ultimately, the tabernacle was pointing towards the ultimate Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, who offered his body on the cross once and for all. And we now live in the New Testament, demonstrating that Jesus is the temple. He's the fulfillment of the temple. And so he fulfilled those things. He was our, um, he created the way in which we no longer have separation between God. He's our mediator. He is our great high priest without beginning or end who stands at the right hand of the Father, the writer of the Hebrews says, forever making intercession for the saints. And then obviously he atoned for us. He went to the cross. His blood was shed for you and for I once and for all. And uh, we stand here at 2021 looking back, having this beautiful demonstration of God's gracious uh, redemptive story through human history that Jesus isn't just something we tack on that this has been God's plan from the very foundations of the world that he would send the Messiah that he remember if we remember last week's sermon the the he that's in Genesis three fifteen, the one that was going to crush the devil's head the, 
New Testament or the Old Testament points to this Messiah, and then the Old, New Testament reveals this Messiah as Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so that's the the synopsis of what we talked about last week. And so, we want to talk about the temple. So, obviously, in Jerusalem, there's a the, today is the the Temple Mount, and back in the days of King David, after God's people finished their journey in the wilderness for 40 years, they were able to cross into the promised land, and, and King David was able to, to, to uh, lead an army of Israel, Israel's army into this place called Jebus, where the Jebusites dwelled, and they were able to defeat them, and they established Jerusalem as the, as the, 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 the capital of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he placed, David was able to do that, and as he's doing that, he, he, we see, we'll see in this story, um, we're going to be mainly in uh, 1 Chronicles 17, so if you'd like to turn there, you can. So King David was the, the king in which was able to lead God's people into uh, Jerusalem, what is now Jerusalem, uh, defeat the Jebusites, and then establish the, the, the national uh, capital there. Uh, Paul talks about King David in Acts, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 13. After removing him, my slides aren't working, Tara. After removing him, he raised up David as their king. So he removed Saul. Saul was the first king. God removed him. You'll find that through the Old Testament chronicles. Oh boy, this is going to be fun. Uh, He raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. So God chose David to be the king, and David was able to lead his people into Jerusalem, establish the kingdom there in Jerusalem. And then as David is um, sitting there in his built house, in his nice house, he begins to have a burden on his heart because as he's sitting in his nice cedar planked house, right, the tabernacle of God, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, dwells in tents. Dwells in the tabernacle, in, in the, in the, te- in the t- temporary structure that they had all throughout the wilderness journey. And so we'll find that, that chronicle here in First Chronicles 17. So if you read along with me. So we'll see David begin to have this desire to build a permanent structure to take God's stuff, God's Ark of the Covenant, all these things that have been so central to Israel's history and his, their livelihood, and he wants to build a t- permanent structure. And when David had settled into his place, he said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of the Lord's covenant is under tent curtains. So Nathan told David, Do all that is on your mind, for God is with you. Nathan's a prophet. But that night the word of God came to Nathan. Go to David, my servant, and say, This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. From the time I brought Israel out of Egypt until now, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have moved from one tent site to another and from one tabernacle to another. In all my journeys throughout Israel, have I ever spoken a word to even one of the judges of Israel whom I commanded um, to shepherd my people, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So God's saying, look, I've never asked for this. Verse 7, so now this is what you are to say to the servant David. So Nathan is supposed to say this to David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, 
to be ruler over my people Israel. If you follow the, how God chose David to be the king, we know David was found in the pasture, diligently shepherding the flock. And Nathan went through all the different brothers that looked were staturely and tall and looked like they were the ones that would be kings. And God said, nope, nope, nope. I want the shepherd boy out in the, flo- out in the pasture. He goes on, I have been with you wherever you have gone, right? David defeated Goliath. David led God's armies or the children of Israel, the armies of the children of Israel to defeat all the enemies that God had commanded them to do. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will also subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I declare to you that the Lord himself will build a house for you. And when your time comes to be with your ancestors, he's talking to David when he, David passes away, I will raise up after you your descendant, who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom so God's essentially using Nathan to tell David, look, I know you want to build a permanent structure for me, but you're not the one. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And so that's how God uh, told David, look, I know you have this burden, this desire to, to build a house for me, to build a temple for me, to make the tabernacle a permanent structure, but it's going to be through your son. And so it was a promise given to David, and we'll see that play out as we go on. And so in today's modern-day Israel there's today's modern-day Israel, as close to it as I could find anyway. And this is the Temple Mount. You see where the Golden Dome is? That's a Muslim uh, mosque now, um, Dome of the Rock. But that is the Temple Mount, and that's where the Temple, uh, Solomon's Temple, was built after God allowed Solomon to build it. And so we see it's uh, up there, and th- this is kind of the same kind of layout as if you remember the pictures from last week. The same kind of layout as the tabernacle, right? The courtyard, and then you have the holy place, and then the holy of holies. Um, but it's instead of a tent, it's permanent, and the features are a lot more uh, uh, larger. Next slide there. So you see the different things. The, the molten sea was the, the, the laverne in which the priests did their, their ceremonial washings. They had the stone altar, so they were much bigger. You'll see, probably you can't see it from way in the back there, but that molten sea or the laverne had 12 oxen. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel on there. And then the stone altar where the sacrifices were done. So it's basically the tabernacle, but in a permanent sense. And then inside the temple, we see the same things that were inside the tabernacle, the table of showbread in the holy place, the altar of incense, the lampstands. That's where the priests, the Aaronic priests, would d- daily do the tending, the, the mediation that was to take place. And then still the veil, right? There's the big veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, and inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, where God got in the mercy seat that sat over it. And that is where God's glory would fill and was a demonstration to God's people of God's presence, but again, the veil there being demonstrating to them that he was unapproachable because of sin. Okay, And then we know through history that ultimately the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so this is all that's left of the temple today. And that's the Western Wall. Uh, Jews, Orthodox Jews go there 
uh, on a consistent basis and want to and pray at the wall there asking God to restore the temple that was once there. And you'll see people praying there often. And that is kind of where it was at. So ultimately, what the temple is about, what we can draw from these things, is we already understand the, the play, it was a place of separation that demonstrated to God's people, again, God's separation from a sinful people, the need for mediation, the need for atonement and covering. Um, but it also uh, demonstrated to us uh, a couple other points. The, the, the temple, when the temple was built, the permanent structure just reaffirmed a few things for God's people. And it's something that we can take to heart today. And the first one is it reaffirmed God's preeminence. That God is to be in focus, in our focus in the central part of our lives. Right? He was, the temple was a means in which reaffirmed to God's people that God t- deserves preeminence in our lives. And so Solomon, Solomon, we can see this being played out as Solomon, God, David's son, uh, recruits as he's the king, as David passes away and Solomon becomes king. It recruits over 100,000 men to build the temple, which took about seven years, according to Second Chronicles. 100,000 men. So this is a big deal. Completed around 960 B.C. and was a means in which the people were to be reminded that God preeminence. Preeminence means to have central focus, to be of primary importance. And this was a time in which the Israel was the children, the, the people of Israel were beginning to be, kind of be complacent, and so it was a good reminder to them that that what God had done in the past delivered them from Egypt, kept them you know faithfully sought them through the wilderness journeys, allowed them to enter into the promised land to defeat the enemies. Um, this was a reminder of them that that God was to be center and paramount in not only their personal lives but in the lives of the nation and it was perched on mount moriah so we saw the that that picture of the temple mount we saw it was overlooking the city of jerusalem so it's perched up there it's high of importance so david it was actually david that picked the spot where the temple was going to be built and he chose mount moriah and it overlooked the the city there again reaffirming god's preeminence in God's people's life, the people of God's lives. It took $200 billion of, in gold by today, today's standards. All the gold, the, the, the wash basins, the altars, the candlesticks, they were, it was all made out of gold. And, uh, you know, at $2,000 an ounce in today's standards, it was about $200 billion, they estimate, uh, of gold that, that went into forming all the things that consisted inside the temple. Um, but it was, again, a good uh, reaffirmation for God's people of God's preeminence, uh, where God should be in part of their, as part of their existence. In the capital, overlooking the capital, uh, high on a hill, uh, a, a temple that demonstrated God's glory and preeminence. And even in uh, 1 Kings 8, chapter 8, King Solomon, is, this is the longest prayer in the Bible, by the way, if you, those of you that are Bible trivia, um, but I'm not going to read it for you because it's like 35 verses. But I just pulled this out of that. This is a, Solomon's prayer and the dedication. After it was all done, he called all the people together and they had this festival of dedication for the temple. And he prayed this prayer. And part of this prayer was, and we see in verse 27, but will God indeed live on earth? Even the heaven, the, even heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple I built. 
And so I think that's an important verse that we pull out this morning to understand that even though Solomon and God had uh, David and Solomon prepare and build this, this immaculate temple, this permanent structure for him, it does not mean that that temple defined where God had to be. That God did, does not have to stay inside the temple to be God, right? In this prayer, we see Solomon saying, look, we understand this temple that we built cannot contain you, right? God is all-powerful. God is everywhere. God is spirit. He's all-knowing. He's not bound by time. He's a being, a unique being, uh, the, the one and only God, the creator of all things. And so Solomon took time to, to demonstrate in this prayer, look, this is just a, a shadow and of your demonstration of your glory. This points to your glory. This points to your preeminence, God, but we know it cannot contain you. And that's important for us to understand. We don't need a special building for God to be uh, present. It was just, again, as the tabernacle, a demonstration to God's people of where God should fit in their life, a demonstration to God's people of the problem that was had occurred because of sin. So, um, the next point, and I only have two points for you this morning, so that's good, right? All right. So the second point, the final point is the temple reaffirmed God's promises. So it reaffirmed the building of the temple, reaffirmed God's preeminence, and it also reaffirmed God's promises. And this is really interesting as you dig into it. Again, at a time when Israel was growing complacent, just as God had promised David, Solomon was able to build the temple, right? He, we saw in that in the in First Chronicles 17 that through the prophet Nathan, God told David, your son will build the temple. And we see that played out. Solomon did indeed um, build the temple. And that's what Solomon says in his prayer of dedication and back in 1 Kings 8, verse 23 and 24. He acknowledges that God is the ultimate promise keeper. Right? Thanks, praise be to God that the, the promises that our Creator God gives us and has revealed to us we can count on him that he will keep his promise. He's demonstrated that throughout human history. And he says this in verse 23. He said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious, the unmerited covenant, right? Gracious means unmerited. Uh, who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all your heart. He goes on to say in verse 24, you have kept what you have promised to your servants, right? He promised his dad, David, my father, David, you spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise uh, by your power as it is today. And so the temple was completed and God and Solomon's prayer was, God, you've reaffirmed your promise to, to, to my dad. You've built the temple just as you promised him you would do so. But it goes even further than that. In the, if you go back to the, 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 the point number two where it has the different things, Tara. Sorry, this thing isn't working. Yeah. So it also, not only did it remind God's people of, of God's promise to David about building the temple, but it also, as we see and understand and dig a little deeper, the, the temple uh, and the place in which it was built also reminds us of other, God's other promises. Right? The Abrahamic covenant, the, the 
the promise given to Abraham before the law of Moses. We've gone through Galatians and we saw Paul lay that out masterfully that it has always been God's intention to save a people not through the law, but through keeping the law, but through the promise given to Abraham, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And you say, so how does the temple remind us of God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant? We'll see that here shortly. And also the Davidic covenant. Not only did God um, promise David he was going to build a temple, but David, uh, Nathan went on to, to give uh, the Davidic covenant to David as you read on in that passage of Scripture. We'll cover that. So the temple reaffirmed God's promises and not only just promising David that the temple would be built, but it also reminds us, God's people, of Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and also the new covenant. And we'll see that as we flesh out these things here. And so we go to... Uh, Abraham, a reminder, reminder of Abra- the a- Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 22. Oh, you're already there. Thanks, Tara. So this is the reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was what? God came to Abraham and said, through you, right? I, through your seed, I will bless all the world. Through all the nations will be blessed. Your children will be like the sands of the, in the sea, the stars in the sky. Through you, I will do so. And he, so he gave Abraham a promise. And then the promise would be through Sarah, through the offspring of Sarah, who was old and was not able to have a, a child. And Abraham was extremely old. And there was no sense in the world that they could have a child. But God promised them. And we saw that, that Abraham and Sarah tried to help them out, right? And, all, and so there was a, the child born through uh, one of their slaves. And, and, and Paul, again, in uh, Galatians, flushes that out for us, that he was the child of the slave, but the child of the promise was where God was going to fulfill this promise. And so this child that ultimately came was Isaac, right? Sarah bore a child named Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 22, we see this, this uh, test of Abraham's faith. God tells Abraham to take Isaac to the hill of Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. This is the child that, that God promised would, through him, would come the blessing, would come the he, back in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah that would come would be, be through Isaac. And so Abraham obediently takes his son Isaac to this Mount Moriah, the same mountain where the temple mount is built. And he takes him up there and collects the wood and the stuff of the sacrifice and builds the, the, the altar and all that stuff. And Isaac even asks, where's the offering? And Abraham's response was, God will provide an offering. And he gets to the point where he puts, lays Isaac on the altar and he, he raises his hand, to the, the knife, to, to, to do what God had asked him to do. And then we see this interjection here in verse 11 of Genesis 22. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here am I, or here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And so we can all, as parents, right, just can't even imagine having to do that, right? But that's the point. That is the point of, of why God allowed Abraham and recorded it for us is to understand the cost. Yes, salvation that is found in Christ Jesus is free. It's gracious and offered offer freely to anyone who will receive Jesus as their Savior, but it costs greatly. Because he who spared not his own son, God allowed his son to be sacrificed for us. 
So this is, the, this is intended to rinse our hearts and to understand the cost of what Christ and God has done for us in Christ. The tremendous cost it took for God to be able to make a way for us, to have that atonement, to have that sacrifice, to be allowed Jesus to be a mediator for us, to be able to divide the separation between a holy God and a sinful man. It costs greatly. But he goes on here, Do not lay a hand on the boy, for I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it said, it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain, that same mountain that David chose to build the temple, where day after day, a sacrifice, a substitute was offered in the name of sin for God's people and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But it's that same thing. And so the temple and where it was built is a reminder for God's people of not only the promise given to David to build the temple, but also the Abrahamic promise that you and I and all of us who are in Christ Jesus this, this morning are benefactors from. Because if we're in Christ Jesus, we are the recipients of salvation through the promise given to Abraham. It's amazing. And then we move on here uh, back to 1 Chronicles 17. So we see it's a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant, but also the Davidic covenant, right? God made several covenants throughout human history. We saw the Abrahamic covenant. We saw the Mosaic covenant, right, as we went through our travel through Galatians. And then we have this Davidic covenant. So we, we read the first few verses of 1 Chronicles 17 that Nathan came to David and said, you're not going to build the house, but your son will. And then we pick it up in verse 11. When your time comes to be with your ancestors, when David dies, I will raise up after you your descendant, who is one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So this throne, this lineage, this promise given to David was that his lineage would be his, through, through him and his reign, through his son Solomon, he will rule forever. It's a promise given to them, to him. Right? In verse 13, I will be his father and he will be my son. I will not, be, not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you, that's Saul. Sorry, my device is not cooperating with me at all. I will appoint him over your over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. And so this temple not only is a means in which God promised David to build the temple, but he also promised David and 1 Chronicles 17 is a summary of the Davidic covenant, which is actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. For those of you that want to go home and, and see when, when it happened. So this is a summary of the Davidic covenant. But this Davidic covenant is a promise given to David that his throne will rule forever. And so when we see the New Testament and we open up the book of Matthew, everyone says, oh, look at all this, this lineage, you know. 
begat, 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 all these people, begat, begat. But now we understand the importance of it because that lineage leads us back to King David and Solomon. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, to David. So God provides, we look again and again and we see through human history, God fulfills his promises that he gives to his people. He is the ultimate promise keeper. And then I also pointed it out in that bulletin that not only was it a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, but it's also the temple is actually a reminder of the new covenant established by the sacrifice of Jesus. As you go to the book of Hebrews, the writer just masterfully demonstrates how Jesus fulfilled all those things that are in the Old Testament, that all those things in the Old Testament were actually appointing types pointing towards Messiah, Jesus fulfilling those things. And so, those, as we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 10, those, the, the, the offerings of goats and, and bulls uh, were, did not satisfy God's judgment. It was just a temporary covering. And it was pointing towards the time when Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. And then the writer of Hebrews just has this, this beautiful passage that I go to often to remind me of God, the promise keeper, that he's promised salvation in Christ for all who will believe and trust in his accomplished work alone. That all those works of the Old Testament, and so we can answer confidently to those around us why we don't worship in temples anymore. Because Jesus fulfilled those things. Jesus is the temple. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the, re- the, real, the real deal, the real thing. The Old Testament is just a shadow. And the writer of Hebrews just, just masterfully demonstrates that to us. So if you, if you want to know, the, if you're like a big picture guy like me, you want to know how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament, Hebrews is the place to go. Because he just points out every single thing about the high priest and all those different things. But he just has this great passage here in Hebrews 10. Because of what Jesus has done. And we mentioned last week as Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. The, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Demonstrating that that separation between a holy God and sinful people has now been made. The chasm has been made through the mediator, Christ Jesus. He provided that sacrifice once and for all. And he says this in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, so the writer's referring back to the temple, that he see, he's showing us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that, to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, not through blood, bulls and goats, the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. He has made a way. He has brought in the new covenant. That it's no longer through the Old Testament and the sacrifices covering sin that He has made a a new and living way because Jesus, yes, died for us and and went to the cross and died and paid the, the just penalty for our sin. But praise be to God, He rose from the grave three days later. Jesus is alive, bodily resurrected. And so now He is now the new and living way 
Not through the death of bulls and goats, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and is our great high priest forever at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Forever. We stand. He's our mediator. We stand as sinful, yes. But those of us who are in Christ Jesus, He mediates for us. As the accuser says, look at all these sin that this person has. He stands and says, no, he's covered. That person's covered in the blood of in my blood. And God sees the righteousness of Christ instead of our own. He stood in as our substitute. He paid the penalty for us and now mediates for us day after day. He died for you 2,000 years ago and he died for all of your sin. The sin that you committed yesterday and the years prior and the sin that you will commit tomorrow. The only means in which you can have a relationship with a holy and just God is through the righteousness of Christ applied to you by faith. By trusting in this promise that he's given to us that all those who will confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the promise given to us from our God is you will be saved. And just as he's fulfilled the promises for Abraham, Moses, or David, all the different promises that we see him fulfilled in the Old Testament through the New, he will fulfill that promise. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. And what is this curtain? That is through his flesh. It was through him coming, taking upon flesh, dying for us as our kinsman redeemer that we can now have immediate access to the throne to the throne room that was cut off for all the Old Testament saints. We now have the opportunity, the blessing to approach the throne room at any time because of what Jesus has done for us. Through his flesh, and he goes on, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus is now our high priest, our mediator, the writer says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Do you grasp that this morning? How amazing it is that we can approach the true and living and holy God at any time because of what Christ has done for us. We can approach his throne. We can approach his throne with boldness. Right? We don't have a bunch of steps to go through. We don't have a, a priest to go through except for Jesus. We can approach his throne at any time. What an amazing gift. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Again, the day of atonement, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the mercy seat with blood for, as an offering for, God's, for the sin of God's people. And so he's drawing these parallels that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. With our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he says this in verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope. Right? My hope is not in the government. My hope is not in my bank account. My hope is not in how good I could be in the hopes that a God would weigh out and he'd see more good than bad. Right? Because scriptures say, I'm bad. There's nothing I can do in my own righteousness to... To, to earn my favor back to a holy God. My hope is not in any of those things. My hope is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. 
without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. We thank you for your demonstration of your love by coming to save us. And we prove day after day that we are not worthy of your love. But you extended it to us anyways. You've demonstrated it to us in Christ Jesus by allowing your son to come and die for us, Lord. You did not spare your own son. And we offer our thanksgiving this morning, God, for such a great salvation that we, through the promise you've given us, that all who will believe and receive Jesus as their Savior and believe and trust in his accomplished atonement, Father, on the cross and subsequent defeat over death, and therefore we who trust in that have a promise. The hope is that you will, we too will have the no longer death will be our enemy. We are, we are free from the condemnation of our sin because of what Christ has done. You're so amazing, God, for what you've done for us. And all because you promised it. And it's, it's freely given to us, God, and we're so thankful that we see today, I hope, the cost. And so we, we're, we're humbled. And we're thankful. And we God, we just, uh, in the corporate prayer this morning, we just cry out to you, Lord, and just ask that you would help us through the power of your spirit to reflect your, your goodness and your love to those around us, that they too may experience what it is to have the condemnation of their sin removed from them, the peace that passes all understanding. God, we so desire our, our neighbors and our family members and our co-workers to be able to experience that and we just ask that you help us reflect that to them. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning or anyone that might be listening online, God, that you, your spirit would convict them of their need to, to turn from anything else, their religion, their righteousness, their self-righteousness, all those things, God, that, they, that your spirit would do a work and they would understand their need to, to turn from those things and receive Jesus as their Savior, that they too may be recipients of your great love. That they too would be the recipients of the promise that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. We ask it for your glory's sake, Lord, and in his precious and dear name. Amen.